Hi, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Oh, my goodness. How are you? I'm good. Did you notice I said hi instead of hey? I did notice that. What was with that? I don't know. It just came out that way. I have no explanation for it. <laughs> I was like, whoa. Oh, okay. What is that word that just came out of my mouth? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? I am feeling so good because we just got off of a week of like some some really great, great stuff. We met up in Vancouver and we had a great live show. And even though, even though it was like the snow day of snow days in Vancouver, which yes, rest of the country, you can laugh at Vancouver, but it, it was, it was quite a lot of snow for what Vancouver typically gets. It was 20 oh centimeters my God, of snow, I know. which meant that not everyone could come out because I guess the city wasn't prepared for it. The roads were really dangerous. There were a bunch of crashes. You probably saw the news if you're out on the West Coast, but still so many people came out. So many people came out and we had such a good show. So thank you to everyone who came and uh, was part of the Vancouver live show. It was a great follow up to the Montreal live show. And I think it just means that one, we need to go back to Vancouver for all of the people who couldn't make it. And two, we got to do more of this next year. What do you think? (laughs) I mean, yes, yes, yes. Um, it was a really wonderful event. Uh, thanks so much to Kate, especially your help for the show was, was really, really, um, necessary and awesome. And, and also thanks to the the listener who showed up and got to listen to us like swearing through trying to get the text show set up. I should have gotten your name, but it was like kind of sweet that you got to see the, that yeah. part of the show. That was very funny. So, so for those of you who don't know, it, it was like, we had some tech difficulties at the beginning, and so <laughs> this wonderful listener got to listen to us uh, sing through our mic checks <laughs> and and <laughs> tape microphones together in a, an attempt to jimmy up a good situation that we yes. could record and also hear one another, and uh, it was brilliant. So thanks, thanks for being there so early and for all your moral support. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, I agree. I agree. We have to do more live shows. Uh, so here's the thing. They are not hard to organize, but they are a little bit difficult for us to organize on our own. And so if you have access to a space, if you're a group, if you want to do something together, get at us, throw us some dates, throw us a suggestion, and we'll see what's possible. The the shows do not make us money, so they get subsidized by the money that the podcast has. And so thank you to everyone that supports the podcast. That's part of where your money goes to is to make sure that we have a place to stay and that we can get there. But we want to keep we want to keep doing these and the energy, the excitement. Um, it, it was wonderful. We will be sharing the episodes from that live show. There will be three episodes because we, we were on stage for so long. And um, those will come out in the holiday uh, period because Sandy and I like to take a little bit of time off. And we thought, well, why not? Take some time off, but also give you all three weeks of content that um, either you missed uh, because you couldn't be there because you got snowed in or you live literally anywhere other than Vancouver or you were there and you want to hear the magic of the show again. Again. Yes. Okay, great. So so, so that's that. Vancouver, thank you so much. Yes. Nora, you know what else I'm feeling great? What? Well, there is, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why I'm feeling great, but <laughs> I don't know what to start with now. Um, <laughs> let's start with the Spotify wrapped. Okay, so we've got some statistics uh, from Spotify. I know it's like this weird, like, um, 
what are those things called? The Myers Briggs stuff? Like Spotify does a weird like Myers Briggs thing for listeners at the end of the year. You've probably seen people share them. Um, and so no, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'll, I'll, tr- I'll trust you. That's because you're not on Instagram. <laughs> so, but in any case, when I was said <laughs> that you probably know what I'm talking about, I wasn't talking to Nora. I was talking to you, dear listener. I know that Nora has no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> But they do a similar thing for creators where they send us statistics about how we've done. And listeners, I don't know if like you folks know, but you're like some of the best fans out there on Spotify for those of you who listen to us through that engine. Um, I was really surprised to see some of our stats and um, and just like really happy because it means that we have the best fans ever. We are in the top 5% of most followed podcasts on Spotify. What? (laughs) And we are in the top 1% most shared globally. Isn't that bizarre? Isn't that wild? Well, that explains where the listeners are coming from because it is literally through your word of mouth that we rely so much on Mm -hmm. for spreading the word about Sandy and Nora. Yeah. And it tells us a little bit like the data that we get does tell us a little bit about where people are accessing us from. And it is word of mouth because most people are listening to our episodes through a direct link that that they've seen somewhere. Mm. So that's really interesting. And do you want to know what our most popular episode was this year? Ooh, I... I am excited to hear this because we also have a contest to announce uh, right after that will be kind of related to this. So please, what was it? It was, drum roll please. It was the Flu Trucks Clan rolls to town, rolls into town. Oh, yes. That had 875% more streams than our typical episode. So you folks, if you're here because of our take on, um, on the... The, the convoy, uh, you'll know that we had a bit of a different take than mainstream media and a lot of the analysis that you were seeing out there. And so if you joined us this year because of that, you know, welcome and uh, thanks for listening. And, you know, thanks for sharing that episode with other people. Oh, totally. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So contest time. It is almost the end of the year. We uh, will be on a couple more episodes. We want to give you two weeks for this contest. But if you remember last year, if you've been a longtime listener of Sandy Nora, last year we asked people to email us with their favorite episode of the last year and to tell us a little bit about why they liked it so much. I thought the responses were amazing. Like almost no three people said the same episode. So we want to do the same thing this year. Enter the contest by emailing sandyandnora at protonmail.com and let us know what was your favorite 2022 episode and a a word or two words or a little bit about why you liked it so much. You'll be entered into a draw and we are giving away six books, three copies of Spin Doctors, the book that I wrote, and three copies of Until We Are Free, the book Sandy edited and has writing in as well. We'll make sure that if you win um, and you have one of those books already that you don't get sent it again. (laughs) So we'll work out which one of the two books that you'll get. But all you have to do is email us, say what your favorite episode was. We will read some of your comments. We'll share some of the comments online as well. Um, If you want to be anonymous, just say, definitely make me anonymous. 
And that will also help us kind of think through what to, to, to focus on in 2023, what really landed with folks, maybe what didn't. I mean, you can always give us constructive criticism as well. That would be totally appreciated too. But uh, we look forward to hearing all of your thoughts on the last year. And hey, if you have any ideas for the podcast, uh, let us know. Uh, we'll for sure discuss them um, and take your ideas into consideration because we love our audience so much. The final thing that I had to say about why um, I had such a great week, honestly, was just like I had a good week of uh, doing some organizing work. You know, I was with you at the Canadian Association of Labor Media Conference in Victoria, BC, where uh, we did some media training with folks, with uh, labor uh, folks. And I did uh, some training with the uh, 1834 Fellows and Black Folk Canada, which was really great. And it was just really nice and invigorating to, to be doing some of that nerdy teaching skills building work that is so necessary for organizing. So that makes me feel really good. And I took the seaplane from Victoria to <laughs> Vancouver for the first time. Didn't even know that existed. So, you know, shout out to the people who made me take that because... That was cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we got home and um, and we're ready. We're ready for a holiday, like I think everyone is. But you know, still a bit of work on the horizon. We have a lot of people to thank. Um, the we just let you know, like the Patreon interface to our email, not super great, and so it's possible that people are getting missed who've been donating and supporting the podcast because it's hard actually to tell between the two interfaces what's what. But I have a pile of names of people to thank this week. Um, and I don't think I'm double thanking anybody. Uh, but if I am, I guess uh, double thanks maybe to some people. But let's see. Um, this week, thank you so, so much to the folks that pledged for the first time or changed their donation, especially Amy, Lindsay, Randy, Nadia, Aviana, Christian, Shauna, Krishna, Ali, Pia, and Jacob, thank you all so much. And to everybody, whether or not you send us money, um, it's all good. It's all good. You listen, you share, you're sharing this. People are finding out about the podcast. We love it. And hey, Zara, Nora missed your name, but I got you. I got you, boo. Thank you, Zara. <laughs> Thanks for being here. <laughs> Okay, so uh, before we get into the topic for today, which is going to be a, a sobering topic, it's going to be hard a, a hard topic. We're talking about uh, violence against um, Indigenous women and murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls in particular. So just a warning that this is um, what this t this episode is dealing with. It's also dealing with white supremacy. So if if you want to pause, uh, take a break, get ready to listen to this or decide that this is perhaps not the episode for you, make sure you take care of yourself in the way that you need to. But before we get there, um, there are a couple of stories that um, our listeners have emailed to us that we want to raise for your attention. Uh, we don't get a lot of this, but it was cool. I think it was people who were at um, the uh, the live show in Vancouver that uh, suggested that we name some of these things. And so we're going to name them uh, for here for you. So the, f the first one is a story that some of us may have seen in the news that I wanted to um, let you folks know about. Uh, there was uh, an, a police killing of a trans person uh, in North Van on November 12th. 
um, uh, to the person who has who's emailed this to us and described it. Uh, I'm just going to read their words directly. Danny was a trans person that was a ray of sunshine, a wise, playful, and passionate soul who cared about everyone and everything. They were invested in community and bettering the world around them, writing and organizing in support of marginalized groups and against policing as a solution to poverty and trauma. Danny showed up. They unconditionally loved and supported the people in their life, even when they were going through hard times themselves. Um, what happened in this uh, police sh killing is um, that Danny was having uh, a mental health crisis, and the police, as they too often do, um, uh, decided to uh, respond with lethal force rather than the support that Danny clearly needed. There is an Instagram page uh, which has been set up called Justice for DC, and DC is spelt D as in Danny, E E. C as in cookie, E E. So Justice for DC on Instagram, if you folks want more information about a campaign that is organizing justice for Danny. Thanks for sending that in. Yeah, the second story comes from Camilo Ruiz, who is a journalist who was also at the live show. So hey, Camilo. And also, um, he's he's beloved, I would say, because when you got to the microphone, people knew who you were and uh, were very excited to to see that. Um, Camilo has been in touch with us to remind us of a case that you may have seen in the news, but maybe not, um, where uh, he and another journalist, Jimmy Thompson, obtained documents related to arrests at Ferry Creek. They were working on different stories. Um, and the documents themselves, you know, they they were they let um, the authorities know, the Arsampino, that the documents were in their possession. They asked them for comment. They didn't receive comment back by the time of publication. And then uh, they published uh, the stories based on these documents. Then there was a court injunction that was um, that was successful in, in prohibiting the publishing of these documents. Now, a whole bunch of legal legal fuckery has uh, ensued. And this is something that I think I'll probably write a little bit more on. Uh, in, a, in a different format, because I mean, it's kind of hard to summarize all this at the beginning of the show. Um, but I do want people to look up Ferry Creek RCMP documents, Jimmy Thompson and Camilo Ruiz. You'll find the information online. I know I, I, I know I, I was mentioned on Canada Land actually the last time I think I was on. I think it was what Jesse Brown uh, duly noted, because I think it was like I was surprised to hear that because uh, I'd seen the story, but I was glad to see that, you know, other people had noticed. Um, but this is like a real basic attack of the on the press. Uh, both journalists tried to defend themselves and then lost in court. Um, and so in the, they're, they're going through a, a whether or not an appeal will be even kind of possibly successful. And, and do they have the legal uh, resources behind them to do this? So um, pay attention to that. And uh, I'll probably put something out of my sub stack that's a little bit more summative, uh, but solidarity to both of them, because that's bullshit. And the fact that like the journalism industry is not coming absolutely to your like, to your sides, to your help, to your aid is pretty fucked up. Um, and you know, if there's a lawyer that's listening to this that uh, feels like they want to get in touch with these folks, um, I mean, they're probably pretty easy to track down. Uh, but if you need some help, feel free to be in touch with me and I can connect you with them. Okay, so now to get into the story that we really wanted to talk about today. Um, I hope that many of our listeners have heard this, but maybe you haven't because it hasn't been all over the news like it should be. Uh, but a man in Winnipeg named Jeremy Skibicki 
uh, was recently charged on Thursday of last week with four counts of first degree murder. Um, and I mean, this is essentially, this is a, a serial killer who has focused clearly on indigenous women. And uh, this has not been uh, all over the news in the way that it should. But what is also uh, concerning about this is this is someone who, through a CBC uh, investigation of uh, past social media accounts, is an avowed white supremacist and is a part of white supremacist organizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the four victims uh, were Rebecca Contois, who's 24, Morgan Harris, who's 39, Mercedes Myron, who's 26, and someone who uh, folks are calling Buffalo Woman, who has not been identified formally by police. They were murdered in a very short period of time, a period of time between March to May of this year. And um, like as if that's not horrifying enough, uh, you know, when someone's killing that many people so quickly, of course, you wonder like, oh, my God, like, are there other murders related to this individual? Now, they haven't even found three of the bodies of the victims yet. Police say that there's enough evidence to lay the first degree charges against the guy, but that there's no point in looking in the landfill where they believe their bodies are. One of the other very bizarre things about this is the murderer is pleading not guilty, which um, is weird in a situation where someone's like a serial killer. Um, and then, of course, that means that the families have to go through uh, the, the whole court process um, while this person defends themselves for having not done it. But it's so horrible. I mean, even just saying that doesn't seem like it's strong enough. It's so gruesome and, and, and horrifying. And I know it's news in Winnipeg. I mean, all the folks that I see in Winnipeg are talking about this. But, like, the news is not getting out of Winnipeg. Uh, and, and I have to say, like, the only story I heard about it while we were away was on Friday morning as I was leaving Victoria. The radio was on. It was 4 a.m. And there was a Canadian press radio copy that was read and there was no mention of the murderer's ties to formal white supremacist organizing or groups. And they even included in the report that there was no evidence, according to police, that the victims were targeted because they were indigenous. Wow. <laughs> There's no evidence except for that they're indigenous. Um, like, like, I mean, as if it's just like, that's just a fucking coincidence or something. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, that I mean, it is it's unspeakable uh, and it's it's horrifying. And it also spells out one of the the issues, again, that we have raised previously with police that I think people don't uh, talk enough about as tools of colonialism, as tools of uh, anti-black racism, as tools of uh, homophobia, you know, the, the police are an instrument that reflects the values um, that we hold in society. And it is okay for the police chief to decide, no, we don't, we don't have any place to start to do a further investigation in the eyes of power. It's okay for that, for the police to decide that. Um, because quite frankly, 
I think it's been proven again and again that um, these are victims that the police simply are not prioritizing, do not um, have a plan towards um, supporting in any way, shape or form their safety and security and relying on the police in anything that has to do with missing and murdered indigenous women and girls is always going to result in some sort of failure. This is not any sort of um, any sort of issue with respect to uh, making sure that indigenous women and girls are safe and secure and are not um, the target of these types of unspeakable, horrifying acts of white supremacy and uh, colonial violence. They can't, any sort of strategy cannot begin and end with the police and the police are never um, going to become a force to keep, to that will shift in keeping people safe or preventing this sort of, um, this sort of outcome. And, you know, this is, we're years out from the report, uh, the national report on uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, and we are still here. Um, the other thing that's that's weird is that, you know, after discovering something like this, these charges being laid this week, I expected that this would be, you know, front page above the fold. If I go to um, any national newspaper, it should be one of the first things that I see. And it's not. I mean, for those folks who are like naysayers or like, oh, come on, maybe there were other things that were going on. I will say that there was, you know, uh, on the front page of the Toronto Star, when you go to to their um, uh, website, there was um, uh, a story about uh, a cold case um, that was finally solved after years. And this story broke uh, over a week ago. So certainly before um, this story that had happened, uh, this this individual being charged on Thursday. And uh, it's a story that is reported on and on, on the front page, uh, talking about how the use of data from sites like Ancestry.com and 23andMe um, were used to solve this cold case from 1997. And it's like, man, The media, again, shows themselves to be such willing participants in um, devaluing uh, these communities that are most at risk uh, in in Canada. But but Sandy, that was a Toronto murder in the Toronto Star, and it's so far away. I mean, this is that's one of the things that you hear, like that, that that. There's a threshold of news in Canada and that things are local, remain local, and then some things break through to the national level. I mean, national level media in this country is so broken that I think it's probably worth starting there by saying that. But it's not a coincidence that it's not getting the attention that it absolutely deserves. I mean, it's it so continues the the systemic racism, the systemic colonialism and misogyny that is all wrapped up together into uh, our media uh, ecosystem. And I, I like, I don't know. I don't know how national level editors think. I do know that they think local and I do. I'm sure that that would be how many of them would defend the fact that this isn't on the front page of every newspaper in Canada, but it's, it's just so 
indefensible and it hides what's happening. It hides the pain of the families. It hides the anger that they have with Winnipeg police and and, and generally with policing. And it's like, who does it serve? It serves the state to not have to deal with these issues, to not have to root out these issues. And so like in this in this in this situation, there's like so many different things that we need to parse. Like there's the 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 like ongoing genocide, colonialism and and targeted attacks on indigenous women. That's piece number one, the, the most important piece. There's piece number two, which is that this person wasn't just white supremacist in the way that white murderers who target indigenous women are white supremacist. They absolutely are. But he was also a committed activist to white supremacy. So that's a whole other piece that we need to parse. And then the third is like, what will it take to get people to care about this in this country? And, you know, it's, it's one thing, uh, it's one thing if people see it everywhere and then they unplug and they're like, I'm not interested in this, but, but, but but Canadians don't even have the opportunity for that because it isn't getting reported outside of specific areas. Or if you dig maybe far down into, into some national post newspaper that then has syndicated content that you're going to read, maybe a copy that got written elsewhere. And it's just like, it so perverts what we understand to be true in this country, and it makes the pursuit of justice so much more difficult. And, it, and, and then it lands the responsibility for that justice on the families who are grieving, the people who are the least able to do that because they're dealing with their immediate needs. They're dealing with the immediate demands of trying to recover the bodies of their loved ones. Yeah, And just to respond to those folks who may um, be... Uh, curious about a response that's like, well, yeah, I mean, maybe it is local. Like, maybe this is a local issue. One, this isn't a local issue. This is national news. This is a national problem. It's related to, um, quite frankly, an international problem. And it's international news. And in fact, it's been reported in international news. It should be widely reported across Canada as well. And I mean, Again, just to give you a sense of what is on the front page of the Toronto Star, I mentioned that issue that was um, a Toronto uh, cold case that was solved, but also an issue with uh, Canada's predatory relationship with international students. I'm, I'm reading this the front page above the fold, essentially on the internet, um, on Sunday. Uh, international students' uh, um, experiences across Canada, France making history in the World Cup against Poland, Uh, a Sesame Street actor who died on Sunday. This is all without scrolling. Alberta's Sovereignty Act. Okay, so there's a bunch of stuff that's across Canada and across the world. The Globe and Mail, same thing. Like, this is a national newspaper. There's there's news from all over the world on the front page. If you scroll down... There's news from all over the world and Canada, and there's nothing about this. This is national news. This has been an issue of national significance uh, for as long as I've been alive and before that. And so I don't know who could argue um, that this is just some sort of local issue. This isn't a local issue. This is about genocidal violence against the nations um, that reside on this land. That's international news. So let's talk about far-right violence in this country. Like, there has always been far-right violence. But it is definitely changing in tone. 
And I, I don't know, people might disagree that, that maybe it doesn't make a difference that this individual, the murderer, was an active member of white supremacist organizations. Maybe it doesn't matter because it's white supremacy all the same. And whether or not like Robert Picton, for example, was a committed member of a white supremacist group, it, it doesn't, doesn't change his crimes. It doesn't change the fact that he preyed on indigenous women and poor women, uh, th- that he still did it. But I'm going to suggest that it does matter for us to consider this and for this to be part of the narrative and that every time that it's not mentioned as part of the narrative, that we we erase what is really happening when people are organizing in the far right. You know, we've seen this now for a decade in Canada, rising far right sentiment and, and, and groups and organizations or clubs or networks or whatever of far right uh, individuals. And that those individuals, people who are active members of these groups, they're not necessarily the ones going out murdering. They're the ones who are making connections that might make it easier for someone to go out and murder and, and, and inspire that kind of thing. We've certainly seen that happen. And, you know, there's been 30 murders in Canada related to far-right violence in the last decade, something like that. It's it's very, very high. Um, but we don't talk... I mean, that's that's like a, a, a guesstimate. I mean, I have an idea that it's somewhere between 27 and 32, okay? So I'm saying 30. But here we have someone who, I mean, his social media, according to the CBC, and you can see pictures of him, he looks like a full-on fucking Nazi, is acting on the rhetoric, on the violence, and is so committed to this that he's going out and being a serial killer, is is like it adds another layer to this story that, that first of all, makes it of national fucking importance. And second of all, that connects it to, to, to organizing that is specific, is explicit in its violence, misogyny and racism towards indigenous women. And that it is insidious because there are connections that are b- direct between individuals like, you know, someone who's ready to go and take murder and the softer cell of the far right. People that we might see associated with the, the truckers convoy or people that we might see associated within Pierre Polly Evers camp. Right. But there are straight lines that run through all of this stuff. And and like having this conversation in this fucking country is like impossible, impossible. It's just like throwing random fucking thoughts and prayers out at the wall. That's what you get from fucking, you know, someone like Trudeau or someone like um, I mean, I don't even know what the premier of Manitoba has said about this. I don't imagine it would be anything beyond thoughts and prayers. And you and, and you can't actually get at the core issues if we're not looking at violent white supremacy and its manifestation in violence like this. And it's always been like that. It, it's just it's like, what the fuck is it going to take for us to actually have an adult conversation about this stuff in this country? Yeah, it's I mean, we spoke about it. Um, was it last week? I feel, we, we recorded several episodes uh, last week, so I'm um, a little discombobulated. But I think it did come out last week when we discussed um, how the the far right, the center uses the far right in order to uh, bolster their their political goals. And I mean, in the last federal election, you will we have we talked about this on this podcast. If you read the uh, policy papers that the liberals put out, that the NDP put out, um, you will have seen that there were uh, targeted, there was targeted messaging, there was targeted um, uh, uh, priorities about white supremacy and about, um, about racism. 
but it was like absolutely meaningless. It was, it was this stuff that was written in their campaign documents that was alongside like say um, a housing strategy. I mean, none of them really had great housing strategies, but you know what I mean? There were some uh, policy directives that were written down uh, in these, in these campaign documents and the stuff around white supremacy, it was, it's always total fluff. There's always nothing there. It's just something that's put there to be clear about who they are, which is how we have become um, so comfortable talking about white supremacy and racism uh, in in this particular time period of fighting against this stuff. It seems to be enough for a lot of people, and it certainly is enough for mainstream media to hear people in power say, we are against white supremacy. We're going to work against white supremacy. We pledge to combat white supremacy. I'm sure that that exact line is in one of those campaign documents, but it never goes further than that. There's never an actual plan. And if there is an actual plan, it's often what we hear is more money going to the police to train blah, 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 which is obviously not going to work as they are also a tool of white supremacy and often where some of this organizing is happening. So, I mean, what the fuck is it going to take for us to effectively refuse that sort of um, complacency? Because that's what it is. It's not just complacency. It's exploitation because they're exploiting a situation where they know that the general public is probably thinking, how do we solve this problem? This is all very individual. We can't jump into this man's head, surely, and stop him from, from uh, carrying out this violence before it happens. So it feels like it's, it's an issue that you can't have any sort of um, uh, impact on. And people in power are relying on us to feel that way uh, so that we don't take them to task for refusing to do the right things. But as we've identified several times on this podcast, there's a path that people take towards this sort of violence, this sort of uh, violent organizing and this sort of uh, violence being carried out. And there are all sorts of things that governments, uh, that public institutions can do to intervene ahead of time. From education to proper health care to proper housing to making sure that people are taken care of to making sure that people um, have a proper leisure time to making sure that people have are making living wages so that they uh, can feel actualized uh, in what they need um, in their own lives but also in honoring treaty relationships that are meant to be honored, in honoring um, any stated goals uh, towards uh, decolonization and engaging with First Nations as uh, in nation-to-nation relationships. All of this stuff helps. Like This isn't just a, a situation that is born in one person's head and just festers there. Um, and we need the media to understand that as well so that when we get a police chief saying there's simply not enough evidence, there's no evidence to suggest that this has anything to do with any sort of um, 
uh, of uh, hatred towards indigenous people. So we're not going to do this um, additional investigation that the media can say, actually, one, that's a bunch of bullshit. And here's why. And two, sorry, what are you all going to do? Not just the police, but politicians who have a lot a, a bigger role to play in this as well. Mm. Well, and you you just listed a whole bunch of systemic issues that absolutely need to be addressed. But let's also not forget that the re- final report on the inquiry of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls laid out a plan, laid out 231 recommendations that needed to be implemented Ideally, to stop these murders, but at least to address things, to make things better. There's an article in CBC from June 3rd by Genicio Deer, and she writes that the National Family and Survivors Circle was slamming the progress of the federal government for not having done enough. Um, And there's like just really heartbreaking quotes like this genocide will continue um, they they made a critical recommendation to the government to establish an oversight body. Now I'm reading from the article in the form of a national Indigenous human rights ombudsperson and a national Indigenous human rights tribunal. Uh, neither had been established by June 3rd when they had this press conference to to, to update Canadians about the progress of the uh, the implementation of the report. And Dear quotes Hilda Anderson Pyers, who's the chair of the National Family and Survivors Circle. Who, who mentions that there were five Indigenous women who had been murdered by homicide from March to June alone. Tatiana Janvier, Chelsea Poorman, Doris Trout, Tessa Perry, and Rebecca Contois, who's one of the victims of the serial killer. Uh, also in that period of time, Chantelle Moore, uh, her murder, this, the, the Indigenous woman who was murdered by um, police in New Brunswick had been declared a homicide. Like, there is just no fucking urgency there's no urgency on the behalf of our colonial government and maybe it's naive to expect that there would be because they are a colonial government and mark miller is a fucking i mean like what what is what is his job other than to just be like yes we're trying we're, tr- we're doing our best we're doing our best like the hopelessness that this situation creates that here are the recommendations you forced the government forced families through this process that was re-traumatizing and difficult and all important enough to go back through with the trauma and the difficulty to be able to finally identify ways to, to make this a little bit better or to make this a lot better. And our federal government can't even do that. And, and it's a federal government that has the full support of the NDP. It can pass whatever legislation it wants as a, as a, as a majority government. In effect, yeah. yeah. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's awful. And, you know, as we've heard before and we will hear again, I'm sure they'll point to that those recommendations being made as the work being done. They'll say, you know, we did all this work. We, we carried out um, this inquiry. We, we, we carried through to this report. And, um, again, like so many other issues that are related to people who are undervalued in our society uh, by the powerful. Uh, it, it Those recommendations all of a sudden don't have the same sort of urgency as the press tours and the photo ops of having done this work. And, you know, that is not to downplay the, the importance, the time and energy um, that so many people put behind these things. It's to say that it's really disgusting that it isn't being honored in the way that it should, and it is a an affront to all of the suffering, all of the murders, 
all of the families that have been ripped apart, the generations of despair and of tragedy that continue as a result of people not taking all of that work that people put into um, this inquiry and, you know, uh, hundreds of iterations of this fight back uh, over decades and decades and uh, centuries uh, of, of fighting back against colonial violence. It's, <laughs> it's completely unacceptable. And it's, I, I just, I, you know, I, I don't actually know, like you, one wonders, like, what is it that is it, 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 it that it's going to take for the attitude around this uh, to, to shift from those who are in power, because I mean, rest assured, like in my mind, it's, it's clear to me that things will shift uh, eventually. Like, um, the the fight back the 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 support that people have on the ground um, the fight back that people have been waging for years like uh, indigenous communities first nations um, are not giving up this fight and so it will in it be successful in the end but it, I wonder like what is it that it's going to take and who in the end are going to be standing there as allies. Uh, because uh, right now, you know, looking at some of these institutions, parties, media, I'm like, <laughs> it seems like a bunch of you aren't going to be there. And um, how do you live with yourselves in in that sort of uh, reality, with that sort of realization? How do you live mm-hmm. with yourselves? You know, this episode is coming out on December 6th. And December 6th, of course, is the day that we remember the 14 victims of the shooting at Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal in 1989. And every year between November 25th and December 6th, uh, feminist organizations do a lot of promotion talking about violence against women, um, different kinds of violence and uh, gender-based violence. And, you know, the the Canadian Femicide Observatory uh, reminds us that uh, someone is killed by gender-based violence every other day in this country. But the stats often obscure the fact that Indigenous women remain way overrepresented, that violence against Indigenous women is not going down, whereas there are general trends downwards in like a 40 or 50 year span. That is not the case for Indigenous women. And today of all days is a day to reflect and to take action and take action, especially against gender based violence. And I really encourage you to think about how you can take that action with whatever groups are in your communities against violence against Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people. Because this is, like, it's it's been called a national crisis so many times that it's, I'm afraid that those words don't don't hit as hard as, as they need to. But this is truly a national crisis. And that crisis runs from... Uh, news about sterilization, uh, of the, more news coming out of Quebec about the practice of sterilization of Indigenous women has just broken this past week. We know that this is also happening in other parts of Canada, uh, right through to birth alerts and the child welfare system stealing Indigenous children from parents and communities, all the way through to these murders and other injustices that happen um, to, 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 to people as they as they move through life. And it's like, I guess, you know, we we can't say what's it going to take because we know that it isn't going to take a moment 
that it will be the strength um, and power of indigenous movements themselves that will will win. But for everyone listening to this podcast who's a settler, who's an immigrant or a refugee, who, uh, whose family came to Canada at some point, I mean, it is our responsibility to do everything in our power to hold our politicians to account, to do the kind of work that's necessary within communities to fight the far right, to fight white supremacy, to fight colonization and to fight anti-Indigenous racism and to not let anyone off the hook, whether that is journalists not telling the story sufficiently, whether that is cops whose salaries we fucking pay or whether that is politicians who don't think that this is going to be an issue that will make them unpopular. We have to show that they're wrong and we have to not wait for that moment and say, no, 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 no more, no more, no more. I mean, it's been the rallying cry for more than 20 years, no more stolen sisters. But I mean, it can't be a rallying cry only. 